Welcome to Fright School. Are you ready? Class is in session. Welcome back to Fright School. Hello, Joe. Hi. We're doing it old school. I know. I love what we always say that, and it's it makes no difference to like the listener, dear listener, listening to this. They're like, we still have to listen to your annoying voices. So <laughs> they say that more about you than they do me. This is probably true. How are you doing, Joe? How the heck are you? I'm doing well. Enjoying this lovely. I don't know. I was gonna say holiday weekend, but right by the time this comes out, yeah. You know, so. We are recording over a holiday weekend. We are, which is lovely. It's been very lovely. Friday, the Sam Squinch took off and we went to see the new Little Mermaid, which I don't want to talk too much about because you and I are going to see it. And then we're going to talk about it over on the After Fright School special on Patreon, patreon.com slash Fright School. The one thing I will say is because there was a lot of criticism of the way that Melissa McCarthy looks as Ursula with the makeup. And I had to say something that's helping me. Now, this is helping me. Doesn't mean it's going to help others. But I just want to put it out there. Okay. When you see it, and we will be seeing it together very shortly, (laughs) is to think of Ursula like baby Jane Hudson from whatever happened to baby (laughs) Jane. She's spent 15 years or so living in a, I don't even know what it is. What's one of those giant sea dinosaurs? Not a megalodon. The ones like you see where they have the huge mouths. Yeah. Whatever that is. Looks like one of those sort of rotting skeletal creature things that mm-hmm. she's like having to live in the belly of in a crevice, a crack, a trench in the ocean for 15 years with a couple of eels as friends. So she's a little, she's been through it. Yeah. And she's just in there putting on lips, the same lips. She just keeps putting lipstick on keeps doing her eye makeup. It's just piled on. It feels very Baby Jane. So that's how I got thinking of her song. So if that helps you. Other than that, yeah, I don't want to say too much more until we see it together and then we can debrief. But those of us, those of you following us over on the social medias, wars this past weekend, Mm -hmm. which again will be a couple of weeks ago now, but you can see it on YouTube should you want to rewatch. We're testing this out as an avenue to play with of showing films that are like in the public domain and kind of live commenting on them while we do some sort of activity. Yeah. So this week it was putting together the new Royal Clamshell Lego set from The Little Mermaid, which we did not complete because it took eight hours. It feels but to you do. completed that night. I did, but I stayed up to one thirty in the morning finishing it. So oh my God. Was I, that all the way through or did you take breaks? When we were chatting, but otherwise once you left, I just said I listened to one of my books one of the audible audio books that i have for class i was listening to that while i just put it together and i looked up just as i was finishing it and it was 1 30 in the morning i was like what it just flew by anyways what was the other thing we did oh we finished the marvelous mrs Maisel together what did you think i was just happy that amy sherman paladino finally knows how to land the plane now i saw something that one of them posted like oh, we finally got to finish a series yeah. so they so their excuse is that it's not that they can't land the plane it's just they've never been allowed to is that true that is correct in that they've never been allowed to start and then finish of their own accord oh, so, so this in, sounds like it was the yeah. first time they were able to yes yeah so this is the first time, which, like, what a feat. I thought it was a very fitting end. I thought it was a satisfying end as well. Yeah, I thought the same. I actually really enjoyed this season overall. There are things I would have done differently. There's some 
stories I would have paid less attention to and maybe added a little bit more of others because sure. it's a lot to try to wrap up and they're doing all these jumps in time and so there's a lot left on the table where was Sophie Lennon like mm-hmm. what happened to her for instance uh, we didn't get near enough Imogene I think we talked about that yeah yeah and she's like in the roast episode holding the camera for mid yeah but we don't really see her mm-hmm. but anyways it just means of course there are things I could pick apart I'm looking forward to starting it from the beginning whenever the hell I have time for such Mm -hmm. an endeavor and just watching it all the way through to the end just to get a better grasp of how I feel. Yeah. I thought it was interesting overall. I enjoyed it. Yeah. But what did you think as somebody who's a fan of their other work, Gilmore Girls and other things? I thought it was very much, I feel like the last episode was very Amy in that Mm -hmm. regard the last episode was not as kooky as some of their other things can be but that's mostly because it's a function of like when daniel writes daniel gets really kooky with it i was very pleased and very impressed and i hope that studios will let her finish other series moving forward i'm looking forward to it it was just announced that they're doing something about the ballet dance world which is interesting because she did bunheads for abc family and that one got canceled which is also has a dance thing so i'm curious to see how we're gonna go with this yeah i'll be curious i again i'm not necessarily a fan of theirs so it's not as if i would follow just them because they're making something not in the way that i would horror directors Mm -hmm. or other writers Mm -hmm. where i will always if i love a book i'll keep reading whatever they write but yeah I might check it out just because I pleasantly really enjoyed The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel overall. And it wasn't like the Gilmore Girls in like in the sacredness sometime. Mm -hmm. Because this was really also the whole show was about the relationship between two women, which obviously mother, daughter and like Gilmore Girls and now like friends. And so I really liked at the end that it was very appropriate that the last scenes were with Midge and Susie. Yeah. I love that Susie was just making her laugh hysterically, and that's what we ended on. The thing that she wanted out of the relationship in her life was somebody who made her laugh. And so it's like, yeah, you ended up with the right person, apparently, yeah. even if it's not it's not like a queer romance in that way. But they that was her longest relationship yeah. and her strongest relationship, even with the, the interim of yeah. them being like broken up for a while, which I also think was inevitable. That yeah. makes sense. It did something that I feel needs to happen more with streaming shows. That final bit, her final act, she tied in various moments throughout this entire season. And it was beautiful the way that it called back without... Called back only in the in the set and not like with images or anything like that. So it was really cool how it did it, how that did it. Because then it just made me appreciate the storytelling more. Because when the first episode came out, I was like, what is going on with these flashbacks and flash forwards and all these different things? And so we know what eventually happens. We understand everything that they have gone through to get to that point in a way that we wouldn't if it just ended like that. Yeah, I agree. Because we're seeing, what is it? Because the show started in, what year was it? 58, 59? So we're seeing almost 45, almost 50 years Mm -hmm. of the relationship by the end, which I did really appreciate. It was a cool examination of what it takes. I think I said this in that first 
or second season because we were talking about some of our friends' critiques of me just an asshole and like self-absorbed mm-hmm. and so there were conversations about just criticizing her and I'm like, no, that makes total sense. Like she's going to fuck up her kids. She's going to be yeah. a terrible mom. You know, when you look, when you watch like documentaries on comedians and they talk about like the cost because it's like you have to have like certain traumas and certain you don't have to, I should say. But a lot of comics are processing certain mm-hmm. things on stage that in their real lives make them a terrible person to be around sometimes. Yeah. And so it all made sense to me in the end. I was like, yes, this is what I wanted. I didn't want her to be this perfect mom and perfect person and perfect comedian. Like she mm-hmm. needed to be messy and she needed to be not great. Yeah, that r- It rang really true for mm-hmm. me. If anything, I wish we would have gotten more of that older, like older Ethan, older Esther... Sure. More of the, those stories. But again, they only had nine episodes, and I, I could have easily sat through 20 episodes to finish that up just because there was yeah. so much. Don't think about it. But, <laughs> anyways, but that, it was fun to be with you for that, to finish that up because we've been watching it. Geez, it's, it's as long as this show has been around. Yeah. About. Yeah. Because there was quite, there was like a little break with COVID and all, wasn't there? So it's, that's one of those early shows we've been chatting about on the show here and there. Yeah. It's so, they're. It's so interesting when you think about culture and artifacts of culture that started in the Trump years. So this yeah. comes in, what, 2017, 20, Somewhere around something there, like yeah. that. The pilot gets released in like 2017. It is one of the first bits of culture that started in the Trump years and now is like ending in this timeline. And so it's interesting because when you define it by that, there's a lot of culture that comes out in that time frame that like says a very specific thing that's as a response culture is right. all about that response right and as of recording this the writer's strike is still going the right. side strike is eminent yeah. and so to think of like what is what is this generation's pushing daisies right because pushing daisies was a cult classic now but it was completely killed because of the writer's strike yeah yeah. and so what is this generation's pushing daisies and subsequently what is going to be this generation's like the apprentice real housewives (laughs) right the kardashians you have the big push of reality television unscripted television yeah getting its push as a response to the writer's strike. And so what are yeah. we doing? What will be the effects that we have not seen yet? Yeah, that's going to be, it's going to be really interesting to see how this grows. Stay tuned for our thoughts on that. <laughs> All right. Before we break, I do just want to take a quick moment to, even though again, this will be a couple weeks after, but you know, acknowledge the passing of rock legend, uh, Tina Turner. I'm a, a huge fan of Tina Turner. I probably don't talk enough about her when I talk about influences because when I was a kid and my mom would tell me when I was older I like when I was like three four five what do you want to do when you grow up I want to be a singer that's what I that was my dream from when I was a kid so I'm glad I got a few years to live that <laughs> dream before COVID totally killed it that's not true I could recommit but that's here sure. or there but I do have very early memories of singing what's love got to do with it like at the top of my lungs as a kid because i love that video i love the way she looked again the interesting like here we have another really unique voice like woman's voice like like fever ray we're talking like interesting voices that kind of pulled me and i'm a huge fan of the movie what's love got to do with it i know that's not exactly tina but it's if it's on i have to stop and watch it sure (laughs) it's like one of those and she's also just at the center of so much like rock and roll history and music and in fact i was really glad that she finally got into the rock hall because that's always been my criticism of when people talk about oh when's melissa going to be put in the rock mm-hmm. and roll hall of fame it's not before tina tina needs to be in in there on her own not just with ike which i think they were put in 
er, way earlier. So anyways, I just wanted to take a moment just to say that because I just, I really did adore her. And I, again, it's just so weird. There there are certain like icons of the world that you just don't think about dying. Yeah. (laughs) And for me, she was like one of those. You Hmm. just think, no, surely she'll live forever. Duh. It's stupid. It's what if I came on here and said my favorite Tina Turner song is Goldeneye? Is it? Uh, River Deep Mountain High. Uh, or okay. honestly, truly, Proud Mary or simply the best. Yeah. I think my favorite is, it's hard because I definitely have a few. Because mm-hmm. I love, I remember in 98, 99, somewhere around there when I was still in, in high school, mm-hmm. freshman, sophomore year, she put out that record, was it 24-7 or something, where it was like, when the heartache is over and whatever mm. you want, whatever you need. I love those songs. So I really, I have a really fond memory of that time. I also love I Don't Want to Fight from the the yeah. song that she made for the for What's Love Got to Do With It. I fucking love that song. These are the songs, that, like, if you follow me on Instagram, these are the songs I posted, like, you went with her. But if we're going to go back, because you're talking about Proud Mary, then you're talking about Ike. And so one of my favorite songs by them, even though it is awful, like, the lyrics are terrible, is Fool in Love. I just, that opening... <laughs> Just like how her voice comes in and just mm-hmm. the whole thing. I fucking love that song, even though it's all about I love my man, even though he's like awful. So it's, yeah, it's not a great song lyrically, but musically, so many things. Yeah. It's just, it's such a good song. So I do really like that a lot. Also, higher, a lot of their takes on things like Help, you know, there there's so many songs that she sang that she just did so well. We don't need another hero. Private yeah. Dancer. We just name all of Tina Turner's yeah, songs. Private... Let's just pull out the discography and we'll just yeah. name every single song. Acid Queen, Shame with Cher. Love her in time. Anyways, you'll be missed. Another queen takes her bow, leaves us, but mm-hmm. thankfully she is, is close to immortal as she can be, just in the sense of what she left behind and yeah. we still get to enjoy her voice. So I just wanted to take a moment to R.I.P. Rest in power, queen. Yeah. Sad, sad, but... I also think Cher was on CNN or something, or MSNBC, I think, and she had been visiting her, I guess, recently and said that she was ready. And I think mo- we're very lucky if we get to go out on our own terms and yeah. at peace. You're not going to get to go out on your own terms, Joshua. <laughs> I, I know will you're going to strangle me. I will take you out. <laughs> That's the note we're going to end on. And we'll be right back to talk about another queen, Dracula's daughter. Meanwhile, in New Jersey... So, Marissa, what talking points do you want to hit on in this week's episode? Well, Jackie, let's talk about how the film addresses the patriarchy. Ooh, and representation of marginalized people. Ooh, ooh, and even philosophical ramifications of good versus evil and horror. We can point out the triangle boobs, talk about the blood splatter, and, oh, the practical effects. (sighs) Um, and also the male gaze? My gaze at the males. Hi-o! From feminism to fangirling, the Jersey Ghouls cover all the bases of horror from a woman's perspective. New episodes are uploaded every other Sunday. Just search Jersey Ghouls to find us on social media and your favorite podcasting app. All right, so we are kicking off. It's Pride Month, right? (laughs) I forget because here in San Diego, our Pride is in July, so I still... You start seeing all the Pride stuff really coming out in july to me yeah for our area yeah do, do you know the reason why, why? it's in july Pourquoi? so the reason why san diego pride is in july is because san diego was one like the first four cities to have a commemoration of the stonewall riots 
which eventually would become Pride celebrations. But right. the reason when Pride celebrations started becoming more formalized, it became a way for queer people to connect and to organize themselves. And in an effort to have folks be able to attend as many events as possible to support it. San Diego chose to have our celebration in July so it wouldn't conflict with San Francisco in June as well as uh, in San Francisco and LA which both have it in June on different weekends. So we just chose also because of June gloom. That's yeah. also the other main reason is because of June gloom we have it in July. New York and San Fran have it around the same weekend on in June but they're on different coasts. And then it's different weekends in L.A. because of that. So that's the reason why San Diego Pride is in July. There we go. There's an organizing reason. We got a whole history of San Diego Pride. I love that. It is June. We are doing Pride Month. And so we thought we would dedicate the next. We've got we got two months of queer content coming at you. So we got June Mm -hmm. is our official Pride stuff. And then July will be just continuing the celebration because we live in San Diego. Be lucky we're not in Oceanside or wherever where their pride is like in October because then yeah. we'd have to do five <laughs> months of pride and we'd have to just become an official. Palm Springs is in November. Oh, there we go. We could be in Palm Springs yeah. talking, doing pride in November. There's never enough pride. But anyways, so this June we're dedicating to queer vampires, hmm. which is going to be fun. So we're going to do, we got a couple of episodes looking at some Libesian vampires. Mm. Ooh. And we're going to do a movie I swore we'd never do on the show. That's exciting. And then we're going to do a really fun, goofy movie. So stay tuned. I'm not going to tell you what they are, but stay tuned for what's to come. Today's episode is dedicated to apparently the f- depiction of a lesbian vampire, though coded, on film, Dracula's Daughter, 1936. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, taken away back. It was in black and white. Joe's eyeballs almost rolled out of his head. No, that's not true. <laughs> this one. No. So we've got, this is directed by Lambert Hillier, which apparently originally was supposed to be James Whale directing. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but that would have given it a whole other. Although I never looked up anything about Lambert Hillier. I wonder who that person was. I wonder, were they also queer? doesn't look like it. But, oh, there's not really any information. There's enough queerness going on on the screen. I don't have to wonder about the writers and directors. But we've got Otto Kruger, Gloria Holden as Dracula's daughter, the Countess Maria Zaleska. Mm -hmm. And we also have returning from Dracula, Edward Edward Van Sloan. But oddly, it's Van Helsing in Dracula, and now here it's Von Helsing. So I don't know what that's all about, other than maybe just trying to differentiate i don't know it's weird why like why change that but who cares point is dracula's daughter tells the story of dracula's daughter (laughs) after the death of dracula she's very excited because she thinks she's going to be freed from the bonds of vampirism Mm -hmm. she'll be freed to become a normal a normie person oh she wants to be normie she wants to be normie and yeah the film that's kind of where it starts joe what did you think i didn't hate it Yay, winner. We're winning. I mean, yeah. We're really winning on the movies this year, I feel. I think we are, too. There's been a lot more every... I feel like once a month, you've got at least one movie you'd watch again, and that's pretty... Uh, I didn't say I'd watch this again. Uh, I just uh, said I didn't uh, hate it. Okay. Okay. Forgive me. I jump in the gun. I'm getting too excited. Do I want to watch a European countess surface the entire... (gasps) 
Eight. Hour and what, 10 minutes. Yeah, it's very fast. Yeah. I thought it was very good. I was like, how is this gay? And then the moment happens. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's gay. It's yeah. very gay. It's pretty queer. But yeah, I actually really enjoyed it. And I think that it was interesting to be like, oh, this is like them trying to still keep Dracula alive. <laughs> I like how they made it different. And I like how it just it took the it took what people know and and like the that well-established IP of Dracula at that time. And then it just kind of ran with it in a different direction. So that was really good. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. I enjoy this more than Dracula because Dracula itself is great in the sense Mm of the 1931 film. It set up a huge property, obviously, like you said, IP. Yeah. We get so much from it. There's so much in culture because of Mm -hmm. Dracula Mm -hmm. and so much analysis of the vampire that kind of goes back to that film, back to that knob that I'm happy to have. Mm -hmm. But Dracula itself can be a bit of a slog sometimes to watch. Yes. It's this was way more fun. There's some humor injected into it. It moves very quickly. It's not wasting any time. Yeah, so I I really enjoy that. It's apparently based on so there was a deleted chapter or a censored or not censored but removed chapter from Dracula called Dracula's Guest, which I think is about a female vampire that Jonathan Harker runs into, not necessarily his daughter, but just this other vampire. And so I think that's the source material here, along with the book that likely influenced Dracula, Carmilla, Mm. which is about a female vampire, also likely a lesbian or is coded queer. I've actually Mm -hmm. not read Carmilla, so I shouldn't talk as if I know. But I do know a lot of times they go, oh, the lesbian vampire trope goes back to Carmilla, which was published in 1872. So 15, 20 years before Dracula. So in looking at Dracula's daughter... Obviously, we do have the these queer overtones. And so I wanted to read because there's a couple things that I thought was very interesting and I do think shows up. This is almost this is one of those films that's like hardly subtext. It is after the Hays Code, though. So they couldn't expressly code her as a lesbian, even though referencing it, hinting at it was a big part of Universal's promotion. Oh, you got to keep hide your wives. Dracula's daughter's coming. It was part of their marketing. But anyway, so from our one of our books here, Monsters in the Closet, Homosexuality in the Horror Film by Harry M. Benshoff, the seminal text, as we call it, yes. literally and figuratively. Dracula's Daughter, although the most obvious lesbian monster movie of the classical period, has several striking formal patterns, which make it important to, to a discussion of how the monster movie changed during the years surrounding and during World War II. So the film retains its classical status by linking homosexual desire to the usual Hollywood horror film signifiers of depravity, bestiality, necrophilia, sadomasochism, incest, racial otherness, modernism, and the uh, construction of the queer couple. It also looks ahead to a new set of signifiers, which would become the chief foci of the monster movie's narrative during the war years. This is an increasing domestication of monstrous figures, the idea of monstrous communities, a more vigorous interest in psychiatry or medical science as a tool for treating and or eventually curing the monster. So like the debate over homosexuals, monsters were increasingly figured as a problem best approached through medical and or psychiatric intervention rather than legal or religious. And while many of the World War II era horror films insist that the monster queer can be cured or at least understood through psychological means, many others reflect a deep ambivalence about the figure of the psychiatrist himself as well as his, I love this, psychiadabra, as 
Time Magazine once put it. As queer people watching this now, this is super obvious. I don't know what it looked like to queer people then if they necessarily read this as a queer tale. Sure. But definitely like the psychiatry of it all, like her going and maybe this man can cure me. I thought that was very clear. It's not necessarily like subtext. Any thoughts on that, Joe? World War II, vampires, <laughs> psychiatry. The moment when the scene happens with Lily, I'm like, yeah, it's very apparent that this is exactly what's happening. But it's hidden enough, right? The whole thing with the Hays Code and how people railed against it in their own way is that it's veiled enough that it makes it so that way it doesn't violate the law. But there is still this queerness about it. And to us who know. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. So when you're talking about Lily, you're talking about the Countess Zaleska. She fancies herself an artist as a pretext to get young virginal women, which I just love. Her name's Lily. She's like a white, blonde, young woman. Zaleska herself is dark-haired. I think that was some of the, the racial otherness, which we discussed uh, when we d- talked about Dracula. And She could be Bela's daughter. Like, it's very striking. Yeah, yeah. They do, I think, a very good job making her kind of look in that same sort of, there's a racial otherness to her as well, coming in, you know, preying on the young, vulnerable women we must protect. Mm-hmm. So here, instead of it necessarily being about race, it is about this homosexual monstrosity mm. coming in. And again, I love it. This movie's almost 100 years old and we're still like having conversations like this. The, yeah. This doesn't necessarily go away. And we're seeing, again, these conversations about the medicalization of queerness and of treating it through a medical... I think you said why it was like, this episode we should call like CBT for vampires. Yeah. <laughs> Just stop thinking about drinking blood. Yeah, it was the, when Garth said, Dr. everything Garth. you need is inside of you. Right. And I was like, oh, I've heard this before. Yeah, I've yeah. heard this before. I've heard this in the therapy room. Yeah. Dr. Jeffrey Garth. He's a great foil for her. She's this like exotic, vampiric countess. And he's this very heteronormative. He's the expert in the room. Mm-hmm. He, yeah, it's like that. You're getting that. Again, that anxiety of like power being taken away. Because this is also after women getting like the right to vote. And you have that early first wave of feminism. We're still 10, 20 years from like the feminine mystique coming out. But there are these conversations going on too about like empowering women and women having more control. So I think there's there's some of those anxieties too that are in here. Just to go back to what you were talking about with the sequence with Lily. There are two sequences I think that are pretty overtly sexual there's that one and then when the other woman janet is like on the couch and she's like coming closer Mm -hmm. and closer to her so maybe tmi but when we're growing up and you're watching a movie before we had like really explicit queer films Mm -hmm. things that kind of hinted at it could be maybe enough to be exciting to you you know what i mean so i wonder about a lesbian woman hiding her identity fearful about the conversation around her about her abnormality or not watching a movie like this and seeing like a sensual scene like that if reading that and like that becoming a fantasy element sure. i wonder about that this is very abstract i think what i'm talking about but it's added enough to give you some material for later fantasizing some material for later I you like know that. what i mean because they're both very beautiful women i think if i was a lesbian and again this also for like rope when we watch that at that time, if we'd watch it, we'd probably be like, oh, these guys are hot. What can we imagine that they're doing in this one bedroom apartment? You know what I mean? It's providing this sensuality yeah. that's not available mm-hmm. in the same way that to, because the straight people in the film are allowed to kiss, allowed to touch, allowed to hug each yeah. other. So you have this tension. 
between the queer red characters that might have felt very tantalizing at the time. I don't know. Anyways, but to your point, so this is The Science of Women in Horror. This is from Meg Hoftal and Kelly Florence, who we love. We love their Mm -hmm. science of books. But Melody Lynn Hoffman speaking about uh, Dracula's Daughter. I really like this. The depictions of queer characters in horror films are much more common to see throughout the last 90 years compared to other film genres. Quantity does not equal quality, though. One of the most pervasive queer depictions in horror is the evil lesbian, most often represented as a vampire. The first time we see this depiction is through the Countess and Dracula's daughter. The Countess is a vampire who focuses her attention and possessiveness on young women. You can see the evil lesbian character... Hey, listen, this is interesting. Spill over to the seemingly innocuous Disney films, including 1937's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, The Evil Queen, and 1989's The Little Mermaid, Ursula. The trope relies on an older lesbian character obsessing over a younger woman. And then I also wrote down in that sequence where she's wanting to paint Lily, she comes off very predatory. It also reminded me of Rebecca and the yeah. the housekeeper who seemed to be in love with the Rebecca. lady. Yeah, in watching that whole part, it's like you can definitely see... So a big part of the Hayes Code is if you were going to have queer characters on screen, even though they're coded, they still had to be punished, tortured. I think this is, again, the history of queer film is yeah. like so rooted in like the Hayes Code. Even coming into the 70s, 80s, 90s is why we still saw so many movies about us being like tortured by our identities. Because yeah. that thought process and those beliefs were like still rooted in the people making film Mm -hmm. but i I assume like you probably felt the same reading that like the predatory queer so i'm gonna ask something joshua is our resident lesbro older gay men who fancy younger gay men have a reputation or whatever like is there something similar in the lesbian community as well in terms of i'm hesitant to say predatory because there are very many relationships who work with like large age differences but i just don't know like what are the thoughts and feelings in the lesbian community mainly because i'm not in the lesbian community to be fair i'm not either but i understand i don't know this is really interesting that you bring this up because i'm in a class right now called sexual issues and Mm -hmm. we were talking because even newer books and things analyzing like queer relationships still place them in the context of heterosexual relationships because that's how it's like we make these understandings who's the man who's the woman even though people don't necessarily ask that explicitly anymore mm-hmm. there's still an expectation of like certain gender roles sure the, it's like when people say who's the top who's the bottom yeah. that's really what they're the codedness the, that even that is now coded as trying to ascribe some sort of like classic gender role exactly yes a hundred percent i do feel that's still lingering with us and that's a queer community you know we do it too mm-hmm. like i said i was just on the trip with a lot of queer people and there was a man who was in a relationship with a woman but was identifying as non-binary and mask presenting mask presenting and there were several queer people on the trip who i felt were like no then you're clearly not straight but that gets really it gets muddled because it's this is a person who's Mm -hmm. interested in women though was not Mm -hmm. interested in having sex with male or male presenting people so we even still force some of this stuff on each other in other gender mm-hmm. spaces or places trying to be free of gender. I don't want to say this is just a thing that we're victimized by heteronormative culture because we have also internalized it and then use it on each other. But the point I was going to make is because I was talking about how often because of misogyny, which is the root of homophobia, that homophobia is rooted in misogyny, it creates victim. It means that we 
aren't able to get our needs met by people our own age when we're in high school because it's not safe. So you start looking for other relationships, some of my early relationships and connections, especially sexually with people much older than me, which now at my age, I wouldn't sleep with somebody. I definitely engaged mm-hmm. sexually with people when I was like 17, 18, 19 that were my age now that I don't think is appropriate. Like yeah. for me, I wouldn't, even if it's quote unquote leak, I don't know. There's something for me that I'm like, I don't know. I have thoughts on that, that I, that, but regardless, definitely underage. I was definitely underage engaging with people much older than me. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, and I was asked this in class, did I feel like I was like, was it predatory? And I'm like, no, because I felt at the time I was getting my certain needs met that were not allowed to me by society. Mm-hmm. Now, whatever that person was thinking, if they were like, ha, I've got this 17 year old on the hook, yeah. I don't know what their relationship to it was, but I felt okay. <laughs> Just in the sense, again, I'm speaking very anecdotally, very much for me. But I was also just talking about the general predatoriness that's ascribed to men and is okay in male spaces. And Mm -hmm. I discovered in queer spaces, too, that I wondered if it existed in lesbian spaces in the same way. Mm. Because you don't hear about, again, don't hear about it. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It's just not headlines all the time. The headlines usually focus on the violence perpetrated by men and male people. Sure. You don't see gangs of lesbians attacking women. So is this like a man thing? Is this Mm -hmm. like this predatory nature just in men? But one of the women in my class spoke up and said her mother is a lesbian. And she actually gets into arguments with her. Again, this is anecdotal because she feels that she's very, she's toxic masculinity. She's internalized. So the way she is with women, she feels is a bit toxic. But again, I don't know. I can't. I just don't know. We need some research here, Joe. I think that's what we need. Did I just find a did I just find a thesis? A grant to pay for us to go to Etheridge Island? There we go. Exactly. So I can just ask all the women there. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a really fascinating conversation. Does this predatory lesbian trope bear out historically? Males who are predatory does bear out. Like mm-hmm. we see that. It's a big it's a big thing in culture yeah. to have conversations about sexual violence perpetrated by men against women, but not really the other way around. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's not, you know, or women on women violence. Doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, but it's just not, we don't, we're not treating it like it's a problem to be solved in the same way. So it's interesting. It's, is this something just made up by heterosexual culture? These women are coming for our women. These men are coming for our men. Hmm. Like we're in a queer panic right now. A queer panic. Along the same line. Like, you know, these drag queens are coming for our children. Yeah, yeah. Which, again, is in a direct response to the fact that drag race is such a huge thing. We've never been more present, never been more everywhere, living our best lives in some ways. Not everywhere, I guess I shouldn't say, because there are plenty of places it's still not safe. But we're very much in culture. There's a conversation happening. This whole L.A. Dodgers thing that just happened with the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence was amazing to watch play out not that i care about the dodgers but i do care about the sisters they've done incredible charitable work they've done more charity for charity than a lot of these religious people hand-wringing so it's just like we're i feel like a lot it's just fear just terror and it's like a response to that and we see it bear out in horror throughout history when we have people getting certain rights and certain power in society we vilify them demonize them and we make horror films that sort of reflect and Mm -hmm. i think that's definitely true I think that a part of that's here. It's present in Dracula's Daughter. Because like coming 
when it's talking about World War II, I, I think I've talked a little bit about this in the Weimar Republic. First lesbian magazine got created. There were lots of clubs for queer people, art about queer people. Berlin was like a hotbed for queer sexuality and expression of other kinds of, of sexuality. And again, I sometimes I include like heterosexual sexuality in queerness in the sense of bucking that it should be something that we don't talk about, like an embracing of sexuality. That was another, like a very present fear is like, we have to do something about these gays. They're getting real happy and taking over things. Mm -hmm. So you have that response because homosexuals were some of the first people to also be jailed by Hitler. So again, that's why I get very nervous right now, because I'm like, we seem to be doing really well, but there's still power structures that can definitely take away those rights, that can definitely imprison us again. So we're living in that weird dichotomy that films like this, I think, bear out a conversation about the general anxiety Mm -hmm. around queer power, especially women's power, which I do think drag is also tied up in that. I don't want to say it's exactly the same, but there is something about embracing femininity to that degree because they're very threatened by that. Men dressing as women, kind of having these conversations about embracing feminist because that's I think there's a big fear there. We've talked about that before as queer men. It's the feminist. It's the... They make fun of us because we're girly, quote unquote. Yeah. yeah. Oh, again, like you said so beautifully, like homophobia is rooted in misogyny. So that's where it comes from. It's the idea like, oh, why would you want to, why would you want to be a woman? Right. Why would you want to even look like a woman? You were a man and you have all this power as a man. But now it's, ah, but you're seeing now that there is power in also, there is power, probably even more power of presenting in a femme way presenting in a yeah. presenting female presenting in a femme way and it's it's interesting that i'm just stunned right now that you were managed to you met we're managing to have a conversation about 1936 dracula's daughter and then relating it to the current issues of the attack on drag <laughs> in this country i think there's a relationship there i think there's a conversation mm-hmm. happening about a fear of queerness, a fear mm-hmm. of feminine power. And again, I don't necessarily believe in gender myself. I don't believe in mm-hmm. femininity and masculinity, but there sure. are certain things we've attributed to those yeah. spaces. Strength and power and anger and violence and things like that we say are masculine sort of things, toughness, mm-hmm. but gentleness, caring, kindness, these are feminine things. So when we're embracing those we're bucking the trends to some degree it's very layered in this new kind of fear that we're seeing represent itself it's not new fear this film is very much rooted in a similar vibe and if she if zaleska can get like this powerful expert man to help cure her Mm -hmm. of this illness then she can be normal and be happy again and live in the light and that's, again, that's that message that's being pushed. But it's also, I don't know, it's also disturbing. It also tells you a lot about how, again, I, I caveat, I do not think people who are trans have a mental illness. But people who are against trans people think they do have a mental illness and their response mm-hmm. is to kill them or imprison them or hurt them says a lot about how they think we should, how they think mental illness should be treated. That's a whole other, like, conversation with on all of this that I see when people are writing these horrible things, you know, saying you have a mental illness. So you think they deserve like horrible torture enacted on them because they Mm -hmm. have a mental illness. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous, ludicrous. I do not think trans people are mentally ill whatsoever, but at least not in the sense that others do. They maybe have depression because the fucking society we live in is trying to kill them. It's trying to murder us as queer people. So yeah, we probably do have some anxiety, paranoia, 
depression, other things like that. (laughs) I'm going to recommend a book that I read years ago when I was still a part of the Resistance Book Club that you're in. It's called Amateur, A True Story About What Makes a Man. It's a memoir written by Thomas Page McBee. And he talks about his transition and what that means and examining masculinity from that perspective Mm. and the things and everything that's tied up into masculinity and what does that mean to be a trans person who is looking to transition and so there are certain things the trappings quote unquote of masculinity but also how do we separate that from the toxic nature of toxic masculinity from regular masculinity what is that challenging traditional notions of manhood all from like their perspective of being the first trans man to box in madison square garden what goes into that but it's really interesting what the kind of discussions that he goes into about what that means to want to be a man because you are trans but at the same time having complicated feelings about that because masculinity is such this destructive force yeah wow yeah I would like to read that. I remember reading an article in a gender class. It was, I was assigned female at birth. Now I'm a man and I'm reckoning with having male privilege. Mm-hmm. Something I didn't have for mm-hmm. the first 25 some years of my life. It was a really interesting sure. article, probably very similar. Yeah. Thomas is a, they're a writer and, and he remembers like what it would be like when he started to work more and started to present more masculine, how much more people listened. It's just interesting and fascinating and something that, really kind of opened my mind up in terms of gender. Highly recommend. One other thing I'll talk about before we wrap, Sander, her man. I liked how one of the articles I read was reading them as like a lavender marriage, like their beards for each other so Mm. they can operate in society. And she's getting like her needs met by getting the blood that she needs he's helping her sure. do it doing that in exchange like like other renfield type characters in exchange for the same freedom eventually sure. so i thought it was interesting again this is why like the queerness of it gets really murky later in the film because she's asking she wants dr garth the countess she wants the doctor to join her and be like her companion even though she has sandor who is taking care of her and who is clearly brave enough to like stand up to her a little bit sometimes like saying this you're not cured like you need to just embrace it this is who you are i would also like to be like you this is who we are Mm -hmm. who we can be she's betraying him in a few ways by backing out on her deal to make him immortal and finding this other man to settle down with although i'm still i'm not sure why what would her motivation be like I mean, he's obviously smart and worldly, and she wants somebody of that kind of caliber, maybe, but we're not given much hint about what else is going on with Sandor. Or it's like, if you join us in immortality, maybe together we can figure out the cure, really. Like, if she turns him, he is forced to figure out how to cure himself, right. and thus also will eventually cure herself. Yeah. She definitely, she probably just wanted a guy who had better hair. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's true. Poor Sand. But yeah, I think again, that's the the other part. It's like being tempted into the dark side, mm-hmm. being tempted into joining so that then we'll get better together, that kind of thing. It's very, it's just interesting. The little sort of a twist in the end of, of her trying to yeah bring Dr. Garth over to the dark side. Mm-hmm. But then of course, Sander steps in and he, he kills her himself because of, because of her betrayal. I wonder if, so Sandor Nandor 
familiar. There we go. Very a, I wonder if there's a relation there, maybe. <laughs> I have no idea. I doubt it. Could be, though. Could look that up. See if anybody's ever maybe. made that reference. Yeah, but I just, I did think that was interesting because they do, because he has a bit of a queerness about him, too. He's given a little bit of that sort of reading. You just feel for him in the end because he's serving her in hopes of becoming a mortal. But again, that is a very old trope as well with Dracula kind of has that and these sort of Renfield-like characters. But it's also, again, it's interesting because there's a lot of, if we are going to code him as queer as well, when the AIDS epidemic, there's a lot of appreciation for the way that the lesbian community took care of, yeah. of queer men, even so much as that's why the L comes before mm-hmm. the G now, re- reconstituted from, when I was growing up, it was GLBT. At least that's what I remember from the early, before it flipped yeah. to LGBT and then LGBTQ, IA the whole thing but in this it's a betrayal of that she's decided to break their bond to seek out a a heterosexual type arrangement and so a gay inconvenienced and betrayed kills her don't know if that's a great look for us look at that the film comes back to (laughs) a slightly inconvenienced queer i mean maybe they could have talked slightly really but (laughs) because he's killed probably lots of people or helped her bury lots of bodies so who knows how long he's been serving her so to recap our first episode of our two-month-long Pride season, we have talked about AIDS, Nazi Germany, misogyny, and transphobia. Yes, we're done done it all. We're hitting it. All from a 1936 film, because these anxieties have not gone away. All right, we will be back next week to continue this little jaunt into vampire vixens and I don't know. I should add vampiric another. queers. Yeah, vampiric know. queers. There's got to be a pun in there, but I can't think of one. We're okay. sucking out meaning. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Let's. We'll end on that. Thank you, as always, dear listener, and uh, good night. Fright School is produced by Joshua Napier and Joe Farron. Our intro was edited by Davy Boy Productions. Our logo was designed by Jamie Channel Guzman. Episodes are edited and engineered by Joe Farron. Fright School is produced in terrifyingly beautiful San Diego, California. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to the Geekscape Network. 